0: So is this going to be loud enough? Great. So good evening. <coughs> so I'm going to continue the series of talks that I've been giving on the four foundations of mindfulness. And for those of you who might have been coming to much of the series, um, now we're com- finally coming to the fruit of it all. That um, the so far the the practices of mindfulness have been about mostly about just really seeing what is here for us noticing what happens in our body noticing what happens in our feelings noticing what happens in our mind and um, and also noticing how we get caught up how we get attached to things and get preoccupied as mindfulness gets stronger uh, at some point the fruits of mindfulness begin to take over and uh we get some of the benefits of the practice, some of the good things. And the first uh, 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 thing that's talked about is here is the, what's called the seven factors of awakening. And at some point in doing mindfulness practice, these seven factors of the mind uh, begin standing out in highlight and become a refuge for us, a support for us. And uh, so these are the set called the seven factors of awakening. These seven are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, uh, concentration, and equanimity. And I'll go through them. And um, so today I, I heard a story from a colleague, a wonderful Dharma teacher named Adrienne Ross. And uh, she told a story of um, taking the bus where she lives, I think kind of a, a, lo- a little bit longer distance so she was in the express bus. It was apparently winter and raining in Vancouver, where she lives. And there was an uh, uh, older lady who got on the bus, not realizing it was an express bus. And she was going to the hospital. But the bus didn't, well, doesn't stop at that stop at the hospital. Uh, it's an express bus. And, um, but the bus driver at some point understood that she wanted to go to the, to the hospital. It was raining, an old lady and all that. So um, he uh, pulled over where he was not supposed to pull over and then helped her down and pointed her how to get to the hospital. And, um, and apparently this bus driver did, was paying attention to the, uh, the passengers this way a number of ways through the ride and Adrian said, as, as bus ride continued, um, the mood in the bus got better and better because of how this bus driver was treating people. And so at the, um, when Adrian got off the bus, she went over to him and said, thank you, you just made my day with all your kindness to these passengers. And then bus driver said, oh, and you just made my day in recognizing what I'd done. Isn't that a nice story? So, um, the idea of recognizing the good things is a very supportive thing. Uh, The idea of recognizing the unskillful states of mind is also helpful. And it kind of works like this. Um, Another analogy is that um, if you have a greenhouse that's kind of covered with curtains, and you keep it hot and moist in there, the, the plants that you want to grow, won't grow. They'll grow kind of funny and wilty and pale. But the mildew and mold and stuff will just kind of have a heyday. Just grow and grow and grow in the dark. Dark, humid, hot. But if you pull the curtains on the greenhouse and the sun comes in, all the mold and mildew dries up and the plants have a chance to grow. So it's that way in our minds. We have all the stuff in there that can grow, lots of things can grow, but if you keep it in the dark, guess what grows? It's the mildew, and the mold, and the fungus, and I don't know what, the yucky stuff. But if you put it in the light, it lets a whole other thing begin to grow. And the yucky stuff begins to kind of wither up. So, in the terms of this practice of mindfulness, there's um, the primary reference point for, I guess, the mildew or the mold or the yucky stuff is um, called the five hindrances. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And these are the five powerful forces of the mind that operate as black holes in the mind. So you get involved in strong forces of sensual desire and you can get pulled into a rabbit hole and it takes, you know, a long time to come out. You kind of, This gravitational pull is so f- strong, it's like a black hole. You Light goes in and doesn't come out, they say. And or uh, ill will or hate. You go in that rabbit hole and it might take a while to come out even though you're angry. Uh, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, agitation, fear, and then doubt. These are all kind of... These can grow and if we stay in the dark, we can get pulled into them and they get stronger and stronger until sometimes we do something terrible in the world, and then we kind of wake up, because we get, get feedback. The, uh, what what uh, grows, in, so the light, turn the light on these things, and they lose some of their power, they shrink, start shrinking. At the same time, as we bring light into the system, we, uh, the seven factors of awakening begin growing at some point. And they're the ones that thrive under the light of awareness. And one of the things we're trying to do in mindfulness practice uh, is either pull the curtain or at least turn on the light. Turn on the light in the mind, the light of awareness, so that uh, the benefits from that light can affect us and grow in us. So in the earlier parts of this Four Foundations of Mindfulness, we're cultivating and developing mindfulness. At some point, mindfulness kicks in as if the light has been turned on. And we're mindful and we're like clearly like we're here. Like, where else would we be? And we're here in a clear, alert uh, way. And we start seeing things in much greater clarity. Uh, There starts to be wisdom and understanding that what happens. And at some point, as this light gets turned on and the mindfulness gets strong, then uh, the other factors of awakening begin to arise, mindfulness being one of them. Uh, So, and sometimes people like to describe that they arise progressively. Because a lot of practice is a is a pattern of growth that follows a certain uh, lawful pattern or a certain kind of kind of logical pattern in the mind. So first uh, to have really strong mindfulness to really kind of be here in a strong present way it tends to then follow in, its w- in the wake of that uh, interest in what's happening here. kind you see things with greater clarity? And that greater clarity um, brings more interest and more interest in investigation. What is this, really? And um, that uh, if the mind is distracted and agitated, thinking a lot, its interest and curiosity about what's here and now is not gonna be very strong. But as the mind gets quieter and stiller, the natural curiosity and interest uh, becomes stronger and stronger, and, uh, and just like we were, were engaged in what's happening. As we get more interest in what's happening, the investigation factor gets stronger, the interest is higher, there's more engagement with the practice. The energy comes up and we, we, we really want to do this. You know, this is really great to be present and we're really here to be present for the experience and really, you know, the engagement is here. Um, you know, it's not so different than maybe having a good hobby. Where you kind of get into the groove with the hobby and you're just fast you know you don't say you're investigating but you're completely into the details you're f- really there and you're studying the de- difference in details of the thing that you're doing and you're fully engaged the energy is there and then someone says you know uh, would you like to go do your taxes <laughs> and uh, the power investigation drops and the engagement drops and you know it's kind of like you kind of have to force yourself to do it but you don't have that kind of zest, you know, okay let's do it. So this can happen in meditation practice, that mindfulness can, a light can be turned on, and we're really, it's on in a way that really we wake up, we're clear, and it becomes really interesting to see clearly what is actually happening here in the present moment, with this quiet mind, and then there's more engagement in it, interest in it, so that's the energy factor. As we get engaged with interest, that is a, a condition for the rising of, um, of a certain kind of... Um, ze- uh, some people translate it as zest. Um, sometimes translated as joy, usually translated as joy. Occasionally as rapture. And a certain kind of uh, delight and joy that isn't exactly the joy of good things happening to us. Winning the, winning the lottery, for example, or something. But the joy of, of, uh, of engagement, the vitality of being fully involved and present, just feels so good to be here and engage. Just, our system kind of thrives sometimes in this kind of giving ourselves o- over to some one thing and all our worries and concerns drop away and we're just really there. Okay. And, there's kind of the intensity and, and this kind of, when everything gets quiet in the mind and we have this zest, um, it's kind of like all the channels are open and the level of joy sometimes can get quite strong, quite intense. Then uh, with joy, uh, uh, people uh, begin to relax at some point. A deeper tranquility can set in. The kind of se- uh, kind of well-being that can arise with uh, all this momentum, sense of safety and things are good in the world, helps some, some kind of deep relaxation happen. Sometimes some of the deepest relaxations people have in their body comes from um, deep meditation practice. Because we, we feel or sense deep in our kind of Marrow, and you know, the kind of uh, that it's safe or it's trustable. It's okay just to release what's there, so there can be uh, f- uh, wonderful experiences of tranquility. As we get more tranquil, then um, the way this logic works, then uh, the happiness arises, <coughs> and happiness is more sublime, more satisfying, more contented feeling. Than zest or joy because it's, it's tranquil it's more settled and um, and, uh, and all this all along it's like this is really good to be here it's like you want to be here Like why would you think about anything else uh, because it's so compelling and with this happiness then the, and this compelling feeling of being really here that's a condition for developing a very nice kind of concentration the kind of concentration where the mind is soft uh, relaxed, open, spacious, but really steady, really stable, and you can just—you're you know, not going to wander off into a thought. You're just like, you're like anchored, rooted into, uh, you know, the breath or the present moment. And then, with that concentration, that stability and steadiness, there starts to be insight, understanding. We see how things work. We see how the mind reacts better. And then at some point uh, what kicks in is equanimity uh, which is considered in Buddhism kind of the crown jewel of all the wonderful states that can arise short of liberation, the peace of liberation because it's very peaceful this equanimity. It's a very sublime, very satisfying sense of well-being that's better than happiness that comes when the mind has no movement of reactivity towards anything. It doesn't go towards or away from anything whatsoever. The mind is kind of unruffled it 's very strong, very steady, very open, very attentive mind and it's uh, and uh, there's no there's no agitation there's no um, problems with anything at all it 's a great experience and so it kind of follows that sequence, and they can also all be there together in different degrees and they can work in, together as mindfulness practice gets stronger uh, The manager is no. supposed to make an announcement. <laughs> <laughs> it's turned, it turned off. Great, thank no, you. Oh, you do show and t- show and tell. <laughs> Good. No, I don't mind. Um, I just couldn't resist <laughs> the manager. Once in Palo Alto, when I had my first cell phone, um, we were um, doing walking meditation in the hall, and someone's cell phone went off. And I said, oh, no. Back then, it wasn't used to it. Like, oh, no, this is terrible. How could this be? And, and he kept going, going. They should Who's not paying any attention? They should turn it off. You know, what's going on? And on and on and on. And find out it was the, the, my phone in my back pocket. <laughs> 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 How could they? <laughs> and um, they should practice mindfulness. So... Um, So these seven factors of awakening then get strong, stronger and stronger, and um, it's good to recognize them. And even if they're weak, even if the hints of them start arising, that's why I gave the uh, the bus driver analogy, that it's really good to recognize good things. And um, because if you recognize it, it's kind of like giving light to the good plants you want to have grow. And some people have very strong uh, habit of uh, prioritizing what's going wrong. And uh, and there's a subcategory of what's going wrong, what's going wrong with me, or what is wrong with me, and all my problems. And there's a kind of you know that certainly that's like putting the curtains over the greenhouse, and guess what grows then. But from time to time, it's good to notice um, the the seven factors of awakening, these wonderful qualities that can arise. And sometimes, believe it or not, when practice gets strong. Um, Those are the primary experiences people have. Everything else kind of recedes in the background. It's like going to the beach and seeing the sunset, and it's so spectacular that everything else kind of recedes from the background. It's just so wonderful to see the sunset. Uh, These seven factors of awakening are so special, so strong, so amazing, that I think everything else kind of recedes in the background and they become the primary experience a person has. Um, so in the text, it has this statement of what to, what to do about them. And how does a person um, abide aware of the mind, mind object, mind activity, in terms of the seven, he calls it the enlightenment factors, seven factors of awakening. Here, when there is the mindfulness enlightenment factor in oneself, the person under- understands this enlightenment factor, the mindfulness enlightenment factor, is present. Pretty straightforward. If it's present, you notice it. It also goes on and says, when it's absent, one knows it's absent. Just know, it, know it's there, know it's absent. And one recognizes the conditions that allow it to arise, and one recognizes the conditions that allows it to come into perfection. And one of the primary conditions is mindfulness itself. That. Uh, uh, just keep, uh, As mindfulness get, light gets turned on uh, and stays on, uh, then it begins to do its work. And our job is to keep kind of nurturing and supporting it and keeping it on track. And that's a condition for the growth and development of the mindfulness factor of awakening. So I'll tell you another story that I learned from Adrian Ross today. <clears throat> and that was a lovely story. Um, she tells a story of Ajahn Shah walking out in the countryside with some of his disciple students and he saw a um, big boulder on the side of the path and he said to the students, uh, is that boulder heavy? And, um, <clears throat> and the students said, yes it's really heavy, it's a big boulder. And Ajahn Shah said, it's only heavy if you try to lift it. <laughs> So, um, the idea of, um, you know, your obstacles, your challenges, your problems, yeah, they're difficult if you pick them up. Do you have to pick them up? Sometimes you do. But maybe there's probably less problems, real problems, than you realize. Um, There's a famous saying by someone, I forget who it was, some of you know. I've had a lot of problems in my life, most of which never happened. (laughs) So... um, so, the, um, if you pick up a boulder, it's really heavy. Put it on your back, and you, it's hard to walk, right? It's like this big thing, and you're under it. So, when, when Adrian, for some reason, when Adrian told the story, my mind went off a little bit on a tangent, about understanding. Why in the world in English do we say, understand? Stand under. Does anybody know? How do we get to that? Now, I speak Norwegian, and in Norwegian, they, they, the word for understand also has the stand part in it. So it must be a kind of Northern, Nordic, English, Anglican, Germanic kind of thing. And um, however, in Norwegian, they put the word uh, uh, um, in front, in front of stand. It's uh, a full, full store, like the English word, uh, like a uh, F-O-R-E in the fore. So it's forestand. It's like, rather than understand. So these English people have to struggle standing underneath everything. <laughs> no wonder it's such a burden. But the Norwegians get to stand in front of it, you know, and look at it, you know, and be really present. And I like that data you stand there and you look at something and rather than under it. And, uh, and 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 uh, so anyway, in this in this uh, text, it says you understand that the mindfulness factor factor is there. Uh, I would like to propose a new English word. And um, I think that uh, one of my arguments with some of my literary friends is that I believe English is a very fluid and flexible language. And my friends say no. <laughs> so um, the new word is overstand. <laughs> Yeah, I, I overstand that. Uh, isn't that kind of, now kind of, you stand over it, you have a bird's eye view, you understand it, you're, and you're not under the, bur- under the burden of having to look up at it. You know? It's like you're standing above it. And If you really overstand something, you're free. You're standing free of it. You've stepped out of it. You're out of the muck. You know? If you understand, you're still in the mud. Yeah, I understand where I am, but I'm dr- drowning. But overstand, you've gotten over it. You're on top of it. So, what do you think of that? Do you, you, you understand? No, oh, oh, <laughs> we have someone who doesn't believe in changing the English language. <laughs> oh well, I tried. And um, so, anyway, so but the more important point is um, the not the idea of changing language, but the idea of uh, what does understanding do for us? And uh, there's something very significant about seeing, being very mindful, understanding what's there, and in that understanding, becoming free of what we know. Knowing something so clearly that there's a kind of uh, independence from what we know. We're not caught, we're not entangled. And so to really see these beautiful states of mind, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, happiness, concentration, equanimity, to really see them in such a way we're not attached to them or wanting them or afraid of them, but can have this kind of clear seeing, understanding of them so that they keep growing and shine more and more. As that happens, then we get quieter and stiller and the mind gets softer, the mind has less and less attachments in it, and at some point then um, some of the boulders we're carrying will put down. And that's one of the functions of this whole path of practice is to put down the burdens that we carry. uh, They use the word burden uh, in, in the ancient language for the things that we carry all the time that we don't need to carry. So what is your burden? What is it your attachment? What are you holding on to? What is the, you know, the boulder that you're carrying that doesn't really need to be there? And it's sometimes hard even to know you have a boulder. It's hard to know how much work you involved in ho- propping up a sense of self, propping up the desires and the fears, and propping up the suffering you're holding onto. And to learn how to put those boulders down, to put the obstacles down, uh, takes um, uh, uh, you know sometimes takes a lot of clear mindfulness. And it also is really helpful to have this tremendous sense of well-being that comes from the Seven Factors of Awakening. Because then it's, then you realize, with that sense of well-being, uh, it becomes kind of obvious. Why would I keep growing mold? Why would I keep slime? Why would I keep carrying this big, b- big boulder when I have this much better thing happening? And so the letting go practice of Buddhism can be clearly seen as not a diminishment of who you are, not the loss of anything, uh, uh, not, you don't end up with less by letting go, you end up with more. You end up a more fuller experience of these factors of awakening, fuller experience of freedom and peace. So the four foundations of mindfulness are practices of cultivating stronger and stronger awareness, and as the awareness becomes strong enough at some point, the light gets turned on. Until that point, we keep having to turn it on over and over again. And it stays, stays for a moment, and then it goes off. It's turned on, stays for a moment, it goes off. But at some point, the light stays on in the mind. And the mindfulness, the awareness just stays. It's really here. And then it becomes interesting to start noticing these factors of awakening beginning to grow inside of us. And, uh, and it becomes quite compelling, quite interesting. To see this amazing capacity the mind has for beautiful states of mind um, that uh, are not dependent on anything going right in the world around us. It's not dependent on, you know, things of the world. It only depends on the strength of the mind that gets developed. So those are the seven factors of awakening. We have one more exercise in this Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And that's the, what's often called the Four Noble Truths. And that's really kind of the core in, insight of this tradition. And so the Seven Factors Awakening are building to having this insight that really allows us to drop the, the burdens we have. So next week, I'll talk about the, the Four Noble Truths, the Four Truths. So we have some time. Uh, anybody like to ask any questions or make any comments? There's... there's there's coming to your right there. Uh,
1: so one of the, you one have of to, the questions
0: is is it on? Yeah. Uh, is it working? Yeah, you have to hear. You have to hear yourself and the and the speaker, and then you, you know it's working. <laughs>
1: uh, I think I can hear myself.
0: Yeah, you can hear. T- take it further away. and speak. Okay. You hear the difference? Bring it closer. Yeah. Speak. Yeah. Yes, hear the difference. Okay. Okay. So that's for that's for all of you to see. Hear hear that difference. That's really good to know because then you uh, know that everyone can hear. Right.
1: Uh, I think I'm I'm in my practice. I'm still at a stage where I'm still uh, kind of going into this on-off thing that you were talking about. Yes. Um, And then there are times when I flick
0: flickering mindfulness.
1: Yeah. It, It it does well, then it goes away. Yeah. It goes through. In fact, other things like the dark parts, like the anxiety or whatever you're dealing with. Something I've noticed lately is that uh, I'm feeling a little weary with my practice. Mm. I'm feeling like it's a constant project. It's just like, this is, is this ever going to work? Like, what's going on? Like, is it, how long am I going to sustain with this? Uh, and I wanted to ask, like, what to do when you start
0: getting tired of it. Mm-hmm. Great. Good. I appreciate the question. And uh, there's a variety of things you might try, but one is uh, it might be that you're trying too hard. Um, and, uh, and there's uh, maybe too. Uh, sometimes it, the practice can be It's very important, the practice is very useful. People come to the practice with tremendous need and pre- tremendous, tremendous suffering they want to uh, help work with. But sometimes um, it too, becomes too important. And so we make so much strong effort, I gotta do this, I got it's so important, We're kinda like, it's like the life, uh, you know, lifeboat for us, and I like, gotta do this. And so um, the, it's very difficult then to have some kind of relaxation with the mindfulness. So you might see that as you're cultivating this mindfulness, at equally, the same, at the same time, uh, see if you can um, uh, relax more deeply. Relax your body, relax your mind, your heart. See if you can relax. And as you start relaxing, then when you turn on the light of mindfulness, uh, see if you can start appreciating, uh, finding some way to just appreciate the simple act of mindfulness, independent of getting anything, independent of the fact that it's gonna flicker off quickly. In the moments, a few moments that it's there, begin to appreciate that, that it's valuable, it's useful just to be mindful. Because if you're always looking beyond it, then it starts to become more like work. But if you can relax and appreciate that moment, then you f- realize that it's something you can relax into and it's more restful. An awareness which is restful. And it might <clears> still <throat> flicker, but then it becomes more appealing. And then if you keep doing and turning the light on, then slowly it'll probably grow and a stronger kind of more restful awareness will develop. And you might never overcome your, I don't know if you ever but even if you never f- overcome your anxiety and worry, you'll never regret having been mindful because it was so good in its own right. It just felt so nice. But if you're always kind of straining in order to do it right, in order to overcome the problems, um, then someday you give up mindfulness and you look back and say, well, that was just a lot of work and nothing happened. So I would work for a while. Put aside your problems, which are real. I don't want to diminish them. Try putting them aside and try experimenting with this, your capacity for paying attention, being aware, and bring a relaxation and see if you can discover the secret of how mindfulness is, feels good just being mindful. There's something about the open awareness, the space, the non-reactivity, the non-judgment, just allowing things to be, the clarity, just for a few moments and start appreciating that and then see what grows out of that. How does that sound?
1: I like that. Thank You're,
0: you. Okay, great. strategically avoiding your problems.
1: Um, I have a question about being in the moment. Yes. And when you're being in the moment um, and just living in the moment and appreciating that and you have sort of an urge to do something, how do you counterbalance the forethought of potential consequences or thoughts that you'll have after that moment if you rely on sort of what you I don't know if that makes sense but if you rely on sort of what you want to do in that moment how do you also think about the future
0: oh oh, we have to think about the future and the past um, <clears throat> the um, uh, if we only live in the present moment our life becomes curtailed becomes less than what it is you know <clears throat> the, um, it was really a challenge when my kids were about four or five, and taking them to school, preschool, and they only wanted to live in the moment. And so, getting getting from you know the front door to the car, and they stopped to look at every flower and play with the rocks. And you know, we have to get to school, right? You know, this is not the time to be in the present moment. <laughs> be in the present moment in a different way. You know, be in my present moment with me. <laughs> the um, but th- thinking about the future, remembering the past, enriches life, and it diminishes life. And they say sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes thinking about the past and the future can kill life, and sometimes it give, gives life to life. It's really great. So the thing about thinking about the future is, and the consequences of your actions, which means, you know thing, um, when you're doing that, you're doing it in the present moment. So it's possible to, to know that you're doing it when you're doing it. And so you can take responsibility, you can feel the the effect it has on you, you can stay present and relaxed, and at the same time you you can plan and think and consider the consequences. I think a wise life does that. Does that answer your question? Or not so well?
1: Yeah, I guess it's just sort of um, the difference between living in the moment and then maybe focusing on the moment and not on future worries. I guess there's a difference between consequences and worries. Yeah, worries sort of you tend to
0: be... Chances are, when people worry about the future, they're, they're, they're losing their mindfulness too much. They're giving it up to kind of... Um, but, you know, to think about consequences, uh, I think, is a, a sign of a mature life.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: Straight back there. Um, so,
1: I had a question about... Uh, living life intensely, and yeah. so, and I'm, I'm relatively new to all of this, so I'm, I'm a novice, but...
0: Very few things are as intense, as intense, living life in, as intensely, if you're fully in the seven factors of awakening. That you're really alive, really intense, that's like, a bit better than almost anything. So, but, so, so yes, so then I what like I'm, it.
1: What I'm, what I'm noticing is that, you know, people who seem like they've practiced this a lot, um, they seem very still quiet zen all these things that seem kind of opposite of people who may be like intense things like i don't know passionate or obsessive or Uh you know really get into something with a lot of energy all these things um and i'm i'm guessing they're not like mutually or they shouldn't be seen as like separate things or the same thing or whatever just trying to understand like what how they can coexist and how you live your life like, with so much energy, but not being so, um, uh, like, I'm like, not
0: sure how to s- describe it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, I'll, I think I'll answer the question indirectly, and that is that um, as we become more and more mindful, we understand either how we're holding ourselves back, inhibiting ourselves, or when we're so uh, contracted and pushing to do things forcefully that it's not, doesn't feel good. Or we're, we're, we're over, over excited because of, uh, of um, certain attachments, certain concerns, certain ideas we should be this way. You know, I'm supposed to be enjoying myself, so I'm going to throw myself into the party. And, uh, you, know, you know, but like, gee, another, another party. And... Um, And so you start seeing the difference, and so people, some people who are very very quiet lives have quiet, calm lives because they're actually completely bottled up and inhibited. And as they practice, that'll be relaxed and they'll find themselves much more outgoing. Some people who are very outgoing will find that there's a lot of fear or insecurity or attachments behind what makes them outgoing. And as they become uh, more mindful, they're going to say that they're not going to want to do that anymore, and they'll become quieter. Which direction someone goes because of the practice, I can't, say it, I can't tell. But I trust that as we pay attention and know what's going on, we'll notice where we're a little bit off, how we're off, and there'll be a correction. So for you, uh, it's possible that as you become more mindful of what you're doing, that you might end up being more intense than you ever would have dreamt. Because maybe that's a tremendous, natural f- uh, fount of energy inside of you. It's also possible you'll go in the other direction to become even much karma. Wow, he's like the chillest person around. Mm-hmm. Um, I-, I can't tell you which way you're going, but what I hope is the mindfulness will help you be yourself more fully. But if you hold a standard, I'm supposed to be this way, then, uh, then you, people end up suffering. So what do you think of that answer? Yeah. <laughs> Great. I thought that's nice to hear. I thought you'd worry. <laughs> thank you. Great. Thank you for the question. Okay. Oh, we have five more minutes. you have more questions? Up here in the front now. Here, it's coming here.
2: So uh, in my first time here. welcome. I'm, uh, I'm uh, I've been listening to the podcast for past three four years uh-huh. um, and I've been I've been I live overseas so I got few opportunities to come to the US um, and it was always Midwest never uh, the West Coast and I thought you know I'm going to be in California uh-huh. uh, I might as well just stop by so i look it up online so I want to just acknowledge and, and thank you guys for for, for doing this it's, it's, yeah, thank you uh, th- 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 thank you very much <laughs> it, has, it has helped me a lot um One of the things that I've been noticing throughout the years that I've been listening to some of these talks is uh, how your environment can be very hard on you if you let it. Yes. Um, And I live in a part of the world where uh, for a person that has, and I feel that I have attachment to being right, uh, is very difficult. And that makes me be very judgmental on a daily basis, and mm. this is getting out of to work, driving my 15 minutes and going lunch and that kind uh-huh. of thing. I just wonder wh- what, what sort of practical advice and devices would be for you to try to understand that the environment will sometimes work against? Oh yes. really and, and yeah. What you trying to do and stay strong uh, yeah. in your practice. Uh, because for me this is the biggest thing is mm. the attachment that I have. I don't I'm not the kind of guy that I'm not a car guy. I don't have attachment to electronics or any yeah. any other stuff. So it uh, you should be very fairly, fairly easy for me. But <laughs> I, had, I, I, mean, I figured out, I was listening to uh, uh, Robina uh, Kurtis the other day, and she said, oh, some people have attacked me to be right. I said, that's it. I got it. I figured out. How mm. can I said, okay, now what do I do?
0: Oh, if you just realize it, congratulations. This is a big step. Um, and so there's a variety of things you can do. But in terms of the, uh, you know, just using mindfulness, it's very powerful. Um, uh, become more familiar. Become an expert and uh, and how painful it is to do it.
2: I was reading a, a book the other day, and, and then even the, the title of the book is Being Wrong. Uh-huh. And it talks about, and it, again, I saw myself and, and uh, the author says, uh, we basically think we are right all the time yeah. about basically everything, uh-huh. uh, basically everywhere.
0: So the question is, now that you see it, uh, Uh, what effect effect does that have on you? If you get get a little bit quiet and notice yourself having this opinion, I'm right, is is it stressful for you or is it delightful? It's
2: it's actually more stressful. More stressful. Because before, I thought the problem was you. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh You were wrong. (laughs) Sure.
2: (laughs) Now I know (laughs) what the problem is I'm... I might be right, uh-huh. but why do I care? Explain
0: Even if you're right, it can be very stressful. Yeah. So my suggestion is get more familiar with the stress. And uh, at some point when you're really familiar with the stress, you'll, say this, you'll understand this is not worth it. And that'll, that'll go a long way to help you to stop. The other thing that can help you to stop doing it is to cultivate joy. Cultivate happiness and well-being in some way. And that's one of the functions of meditation: is a calm, pleasant, enjoyable state of being that feels better than um, than being the stress of being right. And then you, and, and, and because probably the, what's motivating the desire to be right is some part of you inside uh, has a need. It feels kind of empty, or feels hurt, or feels something. And if you can use uh, something like meditation, or relationship with good friends, or uh, doing good good deeds in the world. Do something that kind of feeds a sense of well-being deep inside, in your heart. And if you feel settled in your heart because of this thing, then there's probably the source of wanting to be right um, will begin to uh, uh, diminish. So those are two things. Feel the pain, the stress of this tendency better, and then you'll want to do it less. And the second is uh, really kind of fill and nourish your heart with something healthy thank you very much thank you what's your name Vidal Vidal yes nice to have you here thank you very much
2: appreciate it
0: great so it's nine o'clock and um, thank you for listening and being here and look forward to seeing you next week